Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome uh, those of you joining us online and everybody at our different campuses. Happy Father's Day. It's going to be a great week. It's going to be a great day. I uh, want to put a temporary bookend on this series we've entitled The Shadow King. It's a biopic of the courage and the controversy, uh, the ups and the downs of a king who's also a poet, who's also uh, an incredible leader, but struggled as a dad. Uh, he tried to follow God and yet broke the laws of God, and yet God sees him as a man after his heart. It's a lot of good encouragement for all of us dads out there today, that regardless of our ups and downs, that uh, God meets us right where we are, it's okay not to be okay, uh, but he wants us not to stay that way and to take next steps, becoming someone who chases after him just like David. Now, to put a, a, an effective bookend on this part of the series before we jump into a summer, a season of summer here at Timber Creek, it's important that we not just start where we left off last week, that we go back to the beginning. Back at the beginning where we first started this whole message series, it was based on this reality. And the reality was every one of us are searching for a king. The story of the Bible is not the story of people trying to get close to God. It's a story of God wanting to be close to people. It's not the story of people wanting to rely on God. It's the story of God wanting people to rely on him, but they want to do it their own way. From the garden all the way through to Revelation, the Bible is a story about men and women who want to take matters into their own hands. They want to hang on to their power. They can't surrender it, and they want to do it their way. And God says, I've got a better way. I've got a stronger way. But we would say, no, we want a king. And whatever a king is, is not just someone who sits on the throne, but whatever we search for, for stability and prosperity and happiness. And that's what we've been drilling down into inch by inch every single week of this series, that we have to surrender. We have to slide off the throne of our heart and let Jesus be the true king in our life. But as we go back to the beginning, we go to the very first king that Israel, instead of relying on God as their source, they wanted us a king they could see in the flesh. And so Samuel, the prophet, listens to, to God. God says, give him a king. And sure enough, Samuel goes, finds the strongest, tallest, most handsome guy in all the land. And we pick up the story years and years ago that Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he poured it on Saul's head. And he kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Samuel is looking at, at Saul, and there's this love that Samuel has over this young man. And he's saying, God's got plans for you, son. God's got plans for you. And he's going to give you a lot of responsibility. Samuel goes on to give him this promise, Saul, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you'll be changed into a different person. This is Samuel believing and prophesying over Saul. And the Bible says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And he did. 
And Saul began to walk in confidence. And Saul took a, a roughneck group of tribes that were kind of scattered hither and yon. They, he began to build up a constitution. And he began to build up a palace and a capital city and, and, and a throne room. And he, he built up a national guard and a military and, 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 and an air force. No, they didn't have an air force. They, a, a cavalry. That's what they had. And, and he just, he built all of these things up. And they became strong. And they pushed against the opposition and they were really carving out a national existence for the people of Israel. But as you fast forward 30 years later, although Saul started with a changed heart, Saul is like you and me. We can, we can be changed and there are Seasons in our life and over a period of time, we can drift back into things or we can drift into new issues that will destroy our lives. Saul, over 30 years, he does a lot of good things for the nation. But when David comes onto the scene, Saul's life gets poisoned by pride. Saul gets jealous and Saul gets uh, full on rage and he can't handle the idea that what, what is going to not be his for long, this kingdom, this authority, this anointing, the title of king, it's going to be given to another. The same prophet who had kissed him 30 years earlier and said, the Holy Spirit's going to be on you, boy, a few years later has to say, Saul, you've messed it up. You've been poisoned by pride. You've done some dumb things. What were you thinking, Saul? And Saul didn't turn and, and repent. Saul got hard and Saul got calloused. And instead of bringing David along and, and processing a succession plan and, and telling everybody he's going to be king someday, instead Saul fought against David who was God's chosen. And by fighting against God's chosen, Saul was fighting against God himself. And 30 years later, after having kicked him out of his house, after stripping the wife that he had given to David back away from him and giving him to another man, after chasing him down at the Bible school where Samuel, the prophet who had anointed Saul and then stripped away the anointing and as he tried to kill him in the worship service and couldn't because the hand of God was on David. David flees from the Bible school. He goes to Nabi, gets some bread and a sword, a special sword. And now David is living in the caves of Adullam, hiding away from Saul because Saul is hell bent on chasing after David instead of truly ruling the kingdom of Israel. And we pick up the story. David is in the caves. And Saul was seated, spear in hand. Again, the author is showing us that Saul can't help but have his power close. Instead of having a palm up for God, the hand of the king has got his spear. He's got his own power that he's not willing to let go. And his spear in his hand, he was under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. Now, here's what's something interesting in that scripture. The tamarisk tree is also mentioned as a shrub way back in the day when Abraham 
uh, instead of following God's plan for his life, he takes matters into his own hands. And he, instead of having a son with his wife, Sarah, they feel like they're too old. So he has a son with their maidservant, Hagar. Ishmael is born and later Isaac is born. Well, now there's this feud between Isaac and Ishmael, Hagar, Ishmael's mom, and Sarah, Isaac's mom. And so Abraham has to, has to basically isolate, um, uh, has to push out of uh, the tribe, has to push out Hagar and Ishmael. And Ishmael is left underneath a shrub, underneath a tamarisk tree. And that is actually the beginning of the major issues that we see in Israel even today because Ishmael would grow up into a great nation and all of those all of those other tribes all of the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Edomites they would all come from the side of Ishmael and now we see Saul sitting under the same tree that the enemy started because God God is showing us that Saul has become an enemy of God too he's sitting under the tamarisk tree and here's what he says to his men. He's, you know, he's picking at the dirt. He's scratching in the dirt. He's sitting on that stump and he's just saying, hey, you know, listen, listen, guys. Will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Huh? He's talking about David. Well, you know, will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is, is that what you have all conspired against me? Now look at this. Saul thinks that he's the one that gives vineyards. He's the one that gives fields. He's the one that makes them. But it was, it was God who was the giver of stuff, yet Saul is seeing himself as the true ruler, the true God of the nation. And he's basically given those guys a what for, and they're like, we didn't do anything. We're, we're with you, man. Like, like they, they haven't denied him. They haven't turned their back. They haven't tried to kind of come up with some kind of scheme to, to, to kill Saul. They're supporting him. And yet his rage has blinded him. His, his, his pride has blinded him. And he's, he's taken it out on his own soldiers. Now here somebody shows up. Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, he said, hey, hey, hey. I saw the son of Jesse, I saw David come to Ahimelech at Nob. When David was fleeing Saul, he went to Ahimelech and he said, you got any bread? And, and, and Ahimelech gave him the, the, the holy bread. Then he said, you got any, any weapons? And it just so happened that Ahimelech opens up the cloth and reveals to him once, the only sword in the temple it's Goliath's sword, the same sword David used to sever the head of the giant. He has it, and David goes back to the cave. That's it. That's all that happens. Gives him food and a weapon. But here's what Doeg says. Doeg says, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath. Now stop here and, and just look. The scripture doesn't tell us that Ahimelech inquired for the Lord. The Bible doesn't say that Ahimelech said, come on, David, let's pray. That's never mentioned in the story. Could it be, could it be that, that it just isn't mentioned by the author? Or is it more likely that Doeg is trying to make his case by kind of adding extra information? That's, that's, that's called like, you know, uh, fluffing it up. 
to make you look more important? Have you ever had to add information to the story, kind of make the fish a little bit bigger in order for you to look more important? This is really what's happening with Doeg. And this is burning Saul up. So here's what Saul does. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. And when they arrived, Saul shouted at Ahimelech. And you know, Saul basically said, you listen to me, you son of a tub. Now, some of you are shocked right now, like, whoa, what did he just say? No, I'm telling you what the scripture says. He said, listen to me, you son of a tub. Himelech, you're going to surely die along with your entire family. How dare you help my enemy? And he ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. Saul is getting ready to place his hand against God's anointed priesthood. I said it last week, write it down somewhere. It's not fill in the blanks, but just write it down. Pride, jealousy, and hatred have no rational boundaries. Saul has lost his ever-loving mind. And you know what those bodyguards do? They freeze. They say, Saul, we cannot lift our hands against the priests what are you thinking? These are our own people. This is our flesh and blood. They are Israelites. We, we they were Israelites. They're Israelites. What are we doing? And Saul is too blind and he's too irrational. So he looks at Doeg and he says, Doeg, you do it. And Doeg the shepherd turned on them and he killed all of those priests that day. 85 priests in all still wearing their priestly garments. Can you see it? They're there on the field next to the tamarisk tree and you have a group of women dressed like nuns and you have a group of priests dressed with the clerical collar and Doeg wipes them out. Doeg doesn't stop there. He went to Nob, the town of the priests, and he killed the priest's families the men, the women, the children, and the babies. There was one lone survivor, Abiathar. One of the sons of Ahimelech escaped and fled to David. Now let me just pause there and say, <clears throat> about 25 years later, 30 years later, when David is on his deathbed, uh, there is a, a coup d'etat. There's this conspiracy to kill David and to kill his son Solomon. And it is driven by one of David's sons and somebody else, Abiathar. I wonder if Abiathar held for decades seeds of bitterness that it was because of David it's because of Saul's rage against David that all of his family, his mom, his uncle, his dad, his cousins, his nephews, all of them were killed. And finally, at the end of David's life, Abiathar wants to get even. Do not let, don't let seeds of bitterness strip away the true meaning and the hope of your life. Don't, don't live your life just waiting to get even. Give it to God. And here we pick up the rest of the story that now Saul and David were on opposite sides of a mountain. All of these priests have been killed just as Saul and his men were beginning to close in on David 
an urgent message reached Saul that the Philistines were raiding Israel again. So Saul quit chasing David and returned to fight the Philistines. <laughs> That's a good idea. You're the king of Israel. You shouldn't even be chasing David. You should be setting up fortresses and you should be setting up barricades against the Philistines. And here's the big lesson that you and I can learn from today's shadow king entry. Here it is. Write it down. A life of distraction never produces a life of meaning if you live your life going from one thing to the next and always distracted, you will end up spending time. You look back and you'll say, where did the time go? A whole lot of people on their deathbed, they usually say things like, I wish I would have spent more time with family. I wish I wouldn't have hold, held on to that hurt. I wish I would have forgiven. I wish I would have spent more time saying the right things. No. Nobody says, I wish I could have just been distracted by more things that were meaningless. There's more things that really at the end of life didn't really matter. And this, is, this is where Saul was. Now, him getting this urgent text message that he had to go back into Israel and begin to fight against the Philistines, that should have maybe recalibrated his focus and so here's where we see Saul after he returned from fighting the Philistines. He was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, <clears throat> this is a great opportunity for Saul to say, I know, I know he's in En Gedi, but I am tired of chasing a gnat in the desert. Okay, Philistines know what I'm doing. I've got to set up, we got to get stronger so we can wipe the Philistines out, not so I can ch keep chasing the son of Jesse. But what does he do? Instead of, instead of being smart, he, he loses his rationale. And so Saul, instead of keeping 3,000 3, of his elite troops to fight off the Philistines, he takes 3,000 of his elite troops from all Israel and he went to search for David and his men again. And we come to a very interesting moment in Saul and David's fight, really Saul's fight against David. Let, let, let me tell you this. Have you ever heard the statement, there's always two sides of the story? There's always two sides of the story. Well, in this case, that's not true. There is no, there is no two sides, okay? It's not like Saul's chasing David, but you know, David could have done that. No, no, David is true and right and loyal and humble and wants to seek after Saul as a father figure. And Saul is hell-bent to destroy David. That's it. End of story. Stop. Period. Close the book. Saul's messed up. And David is just trying to do his best to survive at this point. So Saul takes his 3,000 men. And at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. He had to go to the bathroom. But as it happened, okay, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. What a coincidence. What, what, what a supernatural moment, right? And here's what happens. As Saul comes in, all of the guys of David and David himself are in the very back of the cave. And Saul comes in by himself. Leave, you stay out there. I got to go take care of something. I go, got to go talk to a man about a horse. And, and, and he goes in there. He disrobes and he's using the bathroom. This is a very vulnerable moment for Saul. And David's men see it. David's men say, now's your opportunity. 
David's men whispered to him, you could do this, you could do this. Today the Lord is telling you, pause. Can I just give you a word of warning? Careful whose whispers you listen to, number one. Number two, careful with those that are so quick to tell you what they think the Lord is telling you. There are moments where God is going to tell somebody to tell you something. But you need to be cautious when somebody yields the name of the Lord for their advice. There is no indication that the Lord is showing this to David or showing this to the men. But they're just seeing, oh, this must just be God because it makes sense to us. But sometimes God's ways don't make sense to us. It, it makes sense to the men who are trying to, to stop fleeing from Saul. But this, this, this isn't God because God is showing David how to trust in him, not trust in his own hand like Saul's trying to do. Now's your opportunity. Today, the Lord's going to help you. I'll certainly put your enemy into power to do with, to do with as you wish. Now, David kind of listens a little bit. And so he crept forward. And as Saul's using the bathroom, he cuts a piece of the hem of Saul's robe off that's been laid over on the rocks. But I love this moment. David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. Can I just push pause here? God gives us guardrails. God, God gives us guardrails. And do you know where guardrails are? Guardrails aren't meant to be at the very edge of the cavern, at the very edge of the ravine. Guardrails are out here. So if you bump up against the guardrails, at least you just get a scratch on the side of the car. You don't tumble down into a big old burst of a, of a fireball. And this is David's guardrail. Like it's, it, it's, it's, it's not a sin for him to cut cloth, but it's a guardrail that David sees. It, can I say something to you? It's healthy to have guardrails where you choose, I'm not going to go past this, not because it's a sin to go past that, but because it's just healthy to have a guardrail. And I wonder how many of us have just loosened the guardrail so much. The next time you push up against a guardrail, it's not that you've given yourself any margin. It's that you jump right into a sin. You, you get into a situation you can't get out of. And David is allowing his heart to be moldable enough to where he's got some guardrails. Come on, guys. Come on, ladies. Let's, set, let's be the kind of men and women that set some boundaries for our lives that we don't just live right on the edge because, because it's so easy to get, to get off course. And, and David's allowing a sensitivity of God to be that even cutting his, his robe, he's like, oh, I ought not have done that. So after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and he shouted after him, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. And David gets down like this because he wants to show that he's not out to fight him. He's not pulling an arrow. He doesn't have a javelin in his hand. And he, and he says, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to kill you? I'm not trying to do anything. This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. And he holds up the piece of the robe. He says, I could have killed you. David says, look, my, my father, my father, like, like David doesn't see him just as a king. Can I say something to you? 
A lot of people overlook the reality that Jesse was really, 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 really proud of seven of his sons. But how would you feel if, if a prophet come to your house and said, I want to anoint one of your sons as king. And you, as one of the sons, are forgotten in the field. I don't know the relationship David had with Jesse. But there was a special bond at one time between David and Saul. As Saul was tormented, David would soothe him with the harp. Saul invested into David. David spent time in Saul's home. Saul was a father figure. Father, look what I have in my hand. I could have killed you. I cut it off and I didn't. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. He says, what are you doing? And when David had finished speaking, Saul called back. Is that really you, my son, David? Then Saul began to cry. And he said to David, oh, you're better than me. You're a better man than I am. You, you have repaid me good for evil. And now, now, now I realize you're surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rules. But just, I, okay, I get it. But swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you'll not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. And so David in that moment promises this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home and David and his men went back to their stronghold. David didn't have a home to go back to. And he didn't go back to home with Saul because he didn't know if he could truly trust Saul. And no sooner does Saul get home after having cried crocodile tears and after having asked David to swear an oath by the name of God... No sooner does he get back to his palace and take off his belt and his sword and sit down into the hot tub there on the top of the palace atrium that he begins to stew again and think again and get ticked off again. And, and as he's getting so frustrated, he gets up out of, the, out of the hot tub and puts the robe on. Some men from Ziph came to Saul there at Gibeah to tell him David was now hiding on the hill of Hakalah. Perfect moment. Saul could say, oh, no, he, could, he, 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 he was so close to me. He was, I was in a really vulnerable state. What were you doing? I ain't got time for that. I will tell you this. He cut a piece of robe off of, uh, cut a piece of, of stuff off my robe. But what does Saul do? Instead, Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down. And as Saul's troops have camped up for the night, David slipped over to Saul's camp to look around. And Saul and Abner, the commander of Saul's army, they were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. So Saul and Abner, his chief general, are there next to the campfire and they are surrounded by sleeping elite troops. So here's what David does. David and Abishai, one of his key guys, they went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep. Look at this. With his spear stuck in the ground beside his head, even when he's slumbering, he's got to have his power close. So David took the spear and jug of water, his provision and his protection that were near Saul's head. 
And David takes the spear, takes the, 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 the aquafina, takes the, the, no, this is Saul, this is a king, this is Fiji water, takes the Fiji water, he climbs back up the mountain. When he gets far enough distance away, he starts yelling out, hey, hey, Abner, hey, Abner. And in the scripture, you got to read it for yourself. He taunts Abner. Uh, uh, hey, hey, Abner, um, man, you're doing a really good job down there taking care of King Saul. And Abner wakes up and says, who's that? Who's that screaming? He's like, you're an idiot, Abner. You, you didn't even see me come in there and grab the spear and the jug. And he shakes the Fiji water just like this and shakes the spear. And, and they're like, what is going on? And Saul again says, David, is that you? David basically says, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? Why are you chasing me down like this? I swore to you that I wasn't going to kill your family. I swore to you, I'll leave you alone. Why are you chasing me? Then Saul confessed, I've sinned, I've sinned. Come back home, my son, and I'll no longer try to harm you. For you valued my life today. I've been a fool and very, very wrong. And Saul said to David, blessings on you, my son, David. You will do many heroic deeds and you will surely succeed. He's giving his hand of approval. And then David went away and Saul returned home. David still couldn't go home because he just couldn't trust Saul's word. Trust is the bedrock of every, found, of every relationship. Trust, you're, you're struggling with, in a marriage. What can you do to, to, to get back to the true north of trust? When we trust one another, we're able to have better conversations, better arguments when we trust one another. You, you can't start with just fighting fair. You have to start with the bedrock of trust. And David's relationship with Saul, the trust was completely severed. Saul goes home. David goes back to being a mercenary guerrilla warrior living off the land. He's a, he's a gunslinger for hire, raiding other pagan villages. Saul goes back to his place. And this is the last time that David and Saul will ever see each other on this side of eternity. And as we wrap up today, there's some complex problems that spring from some simple issues here. There's not all these delicate, intricate, terrible issues going on. They're really, really, really pretty simple, small things that have become really, really big things. And as we finish up, let me just give you five of them. There's 99 problems in Saul. Here's just five. Number one, Saul was never fully yielded to God. He was anointed, he was chosen, he had the kiss of the prophet, on the side of his cheek. There was change that even happened in Saul's heart, but he never fully yielded, submitted, surrendered to God. I wonder if that describes some of us. You've come to church, you've, you've even asked Jesus to be your savior. You believe in him, you've been saved. There's been a change, but then there are some things that now You've not fully yielded to God. If those things are not fully yielded, they will grow and become complex and they, they will 
cause you to drift if not addressed. Saul never fully yielded. He had to have the power in his own hand. Number two, God's word was never enough for Saul. God's word, you're no longer anointed. There's someone different. Had he just trusted God's word, it was enough. Can I say something to you? Even though the word of God may be a few thousand years old, and for some people in our culture today, even in some churches and from some pastors that have national stages, they might say to you that God's word is kind of, you know, it made sense back then, but now it's a new day. It's, it's more descriptive than prescriptive. I want you to know that God's word is way beyond the pages of a 66 book Bible. It is God's word made flesh. It is Jesus it is him for us and Jesus has got to be enough. God's word was not enough for Saul, but God's word can be enough for you. When he says, I'm enough, you can say, I trust you. When he says, I make beauty from ashes, you can say, here's all the ashes that I have. When he says, I can take your mourning and I can turn it into oil that brings joy, even though your sadness lasts for the night, you say, man, I am sad and I give it to the Lord. His word is enough. His promises are yes and amen. You can trust Trust what he says because he is trustworthy. But Saul could not trust. He just, God's word wasn't enough. And Saul's life takes a crazy turn. He sabotages his own life. Number three, Saul's life was sabotaged by his own rebellion. Saul's life isn't sabotaged by David. Saul's life isn't sabotaged by King Achish, the king of the Philistines. Saul's life was sabotaged by Saul. Many of us, we sabotage our own lives, we sabotage our own marriages, and we blame the finances, we blame the boss, we blame circumstances, we blame uh, culture, we blame the church, we blame this and that, we blame God, and yet, when we don't fully yield to him and when his word doesn't become enough in our lives, we are setting ourselves up for self-sabotage. And even through all this, in his rebellion, number four, Saul kept religious practices without genuine relationship. Saul still practiced certain customs and traditions. Saul was, was so far removed from Samuel, when Samuel finally died, Saul had no one to go to to get spiritual help. He ends up, and this is a weird part in the Bible, he goes to a witch and he says, I need help. Now Saul had, had banned witchcraft, but his rebellion brought him to do things that were irrational, irrational. And the witch at Endor, she says to Saul, who's in a disguise, he's like in a robe and he's got the big nose and the, you know, the, the, the mustache and the glasses on and, and, and because nobody can see the, the king going to someone who he's banned. And, and he's like, tell me, tell me what I should do. And she's like, no, the, Saul, the, the king has been against it. And, and he's like, no, 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 it'll be okay. Surely as the Lord lives. He's going to see a witch and he uses very religious vernacular, as surely as the Lord lives, everything's gonna be fine, just tell me what to do. Isn't it amazing how we can follow religious practices and be without genuine relationship? That was a struggle for me as a pastor's kid. Church became a business. kind of 
hung on the coattails of my mom and dad's relationship with God for, for many, many years. And it wasn't until the summer between my junior and senior year of high school that God really radically got a hold of my life. And it turned from church as a business to Jesus as a personal friend and personal savior. I had loved Jesus. I had had a heart change, but I had drifted like Saul had drifted. Jesus had to be real for me. It's why Jesus would say in the book of Matthew, lots of people say, Lord, Lord, uh, but they never entered the kingdom of heaven. And when they respond to the master, they say, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And just know it's not about doing anything. It's about knowing him. Go away from me, not because you didn't do stuff for me. Get away from me, he says. Depart from me, you never knew me. And religious practices are doing a lot of things for God. But relationship is knowing God. And I want to say to you that there's some of the most deceived people are those, some of the people that are most deceived about their spiritual state are active in the church because you're doing a lot of religious things, but you've, you've traded in, you've made a bad trade on religious things instead of true relationship. And this is what Saul was stuck in it and he couldn't see it. And ultimately it led to the fact that Saul just did not know how to really repent. You see him repenting to David one time. Then you see him repenting to David again a second time. He didn't know how to really repent. And do you know, you know how you know if you can't really repent? Repentance is where we just churn our hearts. We change our mind. We turn directions, change our mind about something. That's what repentance is. And when you know, here's how you know if you haven't truly repented. If you find yourself rationalizing your behavior or blame shifting why you've done something and blaming someone else like Eve and Adam. Well, this, the devil gave us the apple. What were we supposed to do? Your behavior is unchanged. You're obedient, but it's kind of conditional obedience. God, I'll, I'll serve you if you just let me do this. Or God, I'll, I'll follow you. God, I'll begin to put you first in the finances if, you just, if you'll just let me do this. God, I'll put you first in my marriage if you'll just make sure that this happens or they just make sure that they change. Also, an absence of godly sorrow. Like You, you can tell the difference between a kid that says sorry because they got caught and sorry because they know, yeah, that's... That's not who I want to be. And godly sorrow leads to repentance, the Bible says. And I just wonder, when's the last time you've stood before the Lord and not been afraid that he would slap you in the face with a belt because it's grace upon grace with him, but, but in your own admission of your own sin, in your own separation, in your own pride, in your own jealousies, in your own power that's been unyielded, if... How long has it been since you've just stood before God and said, God, I know you've forgiven me, but I just want to remind you, I'm thankful. I'm sorry I let some things get in the way. I'm sorry. See, fake repentance or halfway repentance has this, but here's what true repentance is. You can write it down. True repentance is full trust in God, full. Complete satisfaction with God that leads to a glad surrender to God. It is full trust in God. 
Not trusting God and the paycheck, trusting God and your feelings, trusting God and making sure that you're built up, not by God's word, but by, by their word, by Bob's word, by Joe's word, by the wife's word. Like if I don't get that, then I don't know if I can really be satisfied with life. But, but true repentance puts us underneath the wing of the almighty God into the shelter of the most high God with complete satisfaction and glad surrender. Oh, I'm glad that I don't have all the answers because you do, God. I don't need all the answers because you are the answer. You're the answer. And we come to Saul who had chased away, had spoiled the fourth quarter of his monarchy. And we come to Saul's final moments. And the Bible says that Sure enough, that same enemy that had been an enemy of Saul for many, many years, that instead of minimizing their power, because he was chasing David, gave them a chance to build up in their own power. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And there, the first king of Israel. supporting himself up against a rock with arrows in his arm and in his back and in his chest. I wonder if his life flashes before him. I wonder if he takes just a moment and in that moment, I wonder if he says, oh God, Saul looks at his armor bearer and says, you better kill me because if they find me alive, they're going to torture me. But the armor bearer says, my king, I, I can't raise my hand against you. The Bible says, so Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. They stripped off his armor. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Saul is dead. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths. They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And one commentator says, there as the sun began to set, Saul's body swung back and forth in the 
Middle Eastern wind and the sound of the hoarse voices of jackals and coyotes. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. They went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree. I don't know if you could describe a more brutal death than that of this king. But can I give you some good news today? That as brutal and as tragic and as ugly and as terrible and as ugh, heart-wrenching as Saul's death. He had so much promise and he dies so brutally. Can I give you some beauty hidden in the brutal death of a king? Write it down. Saul's remedy for his rebellion was the sword, was the spear in his hand the sword that he fell upon. But do you know that Saul is actually, he's dying the death that you and I deserve? Saul's death is our death. Saul's death is the sinner's death. That, that's how sinners die. They die because of their rebellion. Saul had a better remedy. Saul could have repented and turned his heart towards God. But the only remedy Saul could see to fall on his own sword. That's the way Saul died. But do you know that for us today, the remedy for my rebellion is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is, a good, is good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus lived perfect, so you don't have to. Jesus died a brutal death like Saul in your place. You see, Saul was fastened to a wall forsaken by God. Jesus was fastened to a tree forsaken by God. Saul died for his sin, his foolishness, and his rebellion. Jesus died for mine. Saul's death allowed the enemy to drive the Israelites away from their homes. There were husbands having to grab their wives and their children and put, in, put them in the back of the wagon and saddle up the horses. And they had to leave their villages because the Philistines were a mighty horde swarming on them like hungry locusts. And they had nowhere to go. And they had to leave what Saul had worked so hard to protect. And they lost it all over time. And Saul's death allowed the enemy to push back in and conquer back a lot of Israeli territory. But do you know what Jesus' death and resurrection did? Jesus' death and resurrection gives us access to a home that's eternal, to a family that's forever, that can never be taken away. And it's not a family that you could be born into on your own. He invites you in because of what he did on the cross. And his home is not this home. This home is temporary. This body is a temporary tent. There is a home in heaven that you can't prepare, that Jesus prepares for you. 
you that someday he's going to bring you to himself because he's a king that never fails. He's a king that doesn't get distracted. He's a king that has true meaning of life and in your life. He's a true king that will stand up against opposition and do the right thing at the right time, every time, for everyone. Saul's death opened the door for David to approach the throne of Israel. Jesus' death opened the door for you and I to approach the throne of grace. Everybody listen, but let me talk to the dads for just a minute. A life of distraction never produces a life of meaning. Do the hunting thing. Do the baseball thing. Do the work thing. Do the hobby thing but do a life that's meaningful thing. And I want you to know that the most meaningful thing you could ever do is let go of the spear, let go of the power, let go of the past, let go of the regret. And reach out for the hand of Jesus that reaches out to you. Fully surrender, gladly surrender fully trust be satisfied with who he is he is enough and if your life can be focused on him you will find meaning that you cannot find anywhere else and today that same throne of grace that david understood is available to you and to me all of our locations there online would you just close your eyes for a moment It's time to do business with the King of all kings. He does not sit in his throne, arms crossed, tapping his foot, waiting for you to get everything right. He made everything right. He does invite you though to bow a knee, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. And even though you may have gone the way of Saul, even though you may have gone the way of Doeg, even though you may have gone the way of a sinner, because we all have, he can change your heart right now. Invite him. Give it to him. Jesus, I give you my heart today. I give you my past today. I give you my future today. And I ask it all in the name of Jesus, the strong, Son of God, the strong King of all kings. And everybody said amen.